uh, just due to time, decided to, to add a couple of extra weeks to our series. And for good reason, because as we come to Genesis 12, we come to um, arguably the most important shift to the story of Genesis. And that shift comes in the person of Abram. And so our text today will primarily be focused upon Abram. And we'll be in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. And so as we begin, let us begin by reading that text. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain in the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing towards the Negev. This is the word of God. Please be seated. One of the earliest songs I can remember learning as a child in the church and one of the earliest songs my own children learned growing up the church is a song many of you know. It is that song that says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for what? How do we know that? For the Bible tells me so. It's a sweet song and relatively easy to learn. That's a good song to teach kids. And it, it presents this idea to children that they can be certain of God's love. They can be certain of, of different truths, different teachings, based entirely upon what the Bible tells them, based entirely upon the Word of God. It's an important lesson to learn, and one I think a lot of parents try to, try to teach their kids, both in terms of trusting the words of God, but also trying to teach children what it means to trust people and, and the value of words. It's an important lesson to learn at an early age, but sadly... As we grow older, that idea that we can believe words simply because they're written down somewhere, even in the Bible, well, can seem a bit naive to a lot of people. People outside of the church in particular would view that concept of believing things simply because the Bible tells them to be outdated, to be some sort of backwoods belief that no intelligent person could ever possibly ascribe to. Unfortunately, even believers... It can fall prey to that idea that we need something more complex, more complicated. And while there certainly is a time and place for apologetics and different arguments to be used, those things can be incredibly valuable. It must not blind us to the fact or cause us to forget that there really is an infinite value to this word. And that truth that we learn as children, that we can trust something entirely based upon what the Bible says, that, that is still true today. Because while we may forget it as a result of abused speech and human relationships, the reality still stands that the word of God is infinitely more powerful than we could ever possibly imagine. We've seen that power of God's word already, haven't we, in Genesis? We saw it in creation. By the spoken word of God, 
creation came into existence. As we come into Genesis 12 today, we see that same word at work. And arguably, I think we see the same amount of power that is on display, albeit in slightly different ways. But as we examine this call of Abram and the journey that he begins, what we see in this text is not so much a picture of Abram's faith, although that certainly will be discussed. But what we see is yet again that power of God's word on full display for us to see. And in these few verses, what I hope we will examine today, what I hope we will understand, is that that mere spoken word of God is enough, is powerful enough, not only to call Abram, but it is powerful enough to create a new people for God from Abram. And ultimately, it is powerful enough to sustain those people. As we see that power, I pray that we see it both in terms of how it applied to Abram as well as to Israel and and ultimately to us today. For it is a reminder we desperately need, that reminder that all of us have salvation, have life as a result of this word. So that being said, let me open us up in prayer and we'll begin to examine this power of the call, power of the word of God. Bow your heads in prayer with me if you will. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We praise you for the fact that the streets were clear for the most part for us today. We thank you for the many men and women that were involved in that process these last few days. Thank you for their efforts. Thank you for the success there. We thank you for the sunshine this morning. Thank you for the promise of at least slightly warmer temperatures, God. We continue to pray for safety for this body as we venture out from here. Pray for those individuals who are still at their homes as a result of this weather. God, as we enjoy our time this morning, might we not be distracted by the weather outside, by what is happening around us, but might we be entirely focused on you. Might we be transfixed by your word, God. Might we see your word in all of its power in the life of Abram. Might we be astonished by that power, both in the life of Abram, but also might we see the power in our own lives as your people today. God, as always, I pray for those who are here who have not yet put their faith in you those individuals who are still placing their trust on the words of others, on the teachings of others. Might they be humbled today. Might you cause them to see their need of forgiveness, their need of restoration, and might you cause them to see that restoration can come only through your plan, only through your word, God, and save them from their sins today. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might this morning be a time of great encouragement as it's a reminder of the fact that your word never returns void, but it always accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish, God. And we praise you for that fact, for we know that your purpose has included our own salvation. And thank you for that. God, bless our time this morning. Remove all distractions from our hearts, from our minds. Draw us closer to you. Cause us to leave this place in more awe of you today, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. As I mentioned already, our focus today will be on the power of the Word of God in terms of the power to call, the power to create, and the power to sustain. And we begin with that power to call Abram. That calling is found at the very beginning of our text in Genesis chapter 12, simply in verse 1. Follow along with me as we read that call. There we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. Now, oftentimes we jump ahead to the, to the coming verses and, and examine the, the Abrahamic covenant, but, but it's important to understand just 
how bold of a calling this is that God offers. To appreciate that boldness, we have to take a step back from the text and appreciate the setting that that Abram himself lived in, both in terms of his spiritual life as well as the cultural expectations that would have really defined Abram and anyone like Abram. If you're with us last week, you remember that Abram at this time was living with his father, Terah. This actually happens before Terah and Abram and others move out of the land of Ur. And so at this point in time, Abram is still under the authority of his father, still very much living in that context. Now Genesis 11 and 12 does not give us a lot of details regarding what was going on there. But again, if you recall the language of Joshua 24, we have a picture of what this life of Abram looked like. From Joshua chapter 24, beginning in verse 2, we read this background information. Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. This is important to remember because, again, it gives us a window into the daily life of Abram before the call. That daily life was lived outside of the eventual promised land. More importantly, it was lived in a family of idolaters. Terah was actively involved in idolatry, and most commentators agree Abram probably by default was also actively engaged in that practice. This is what people did there, and if your father engaged in idolatry, well, you are under the authority of your father. And so it is assumed by most that Abram no doubt would have been involved in that spiritual practice as well. Abram is not some individual righteous man living for God. That is not why God chooses him. No, he was no doubt like everyone else around him. So spiritually speaking, Abram was in the dark. Not only that, but to appreciate the significance of the call, we must also remember what Abram would have no doubt expected of his own life. That is to say, where Abram would have expected to live, what Abram would have expected to do in the coming years. Those expectations would have been no different from anyone else in Abram's shoes. That is to say, in that patriarchal society, you as a son lived with your father. You lived with your family. The father was the head authority figure in the family. And you as a family with your brothers, with your parents, remained on the same land that you controlled. You probably farmed that land, but it was from that land that you lived. It was that land that provided you protection, that land that provided you sustenance. And your brothers and your father were, in essence, your security. They were your providers. They were everything to you. This would change slightly when the father died, but at that point in time, the family wouldn't disband. Rather, the oldest son would simply take over. He would take the lead. Other brothers would still remain with their wives, with their children, with their families, but they would still remain there because that was safe. That was what was expected. In that day and age, you were then defined largely by your family name and by where you lived. That's it. And so understanding that spiritual background, understanding those cultural expectations, you can understand the significance of what God says when he enters into Abram's life, can't you? For God comes on the scene in Abram's life, and what does he call him to do? Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. God is, very clearly, instructing Abram to give up everything. In essence, it's a call to die. 
It's a call to give up your nation, your family, everything that makes you comfortable, everything that brings you security, and give it up for something that I'm not even going to show you yet. That's a bold ask from God, isn't it? You would think God would perhaps be more reasonable. Maybe God could could invite Abram into a relationship with him and over years show him what he is like, over years show him the good things that he can enjoy, but God doesn't do that. The immediate call is a call to death. The immediate call is to give up everything, to do something that people back then just didn't do. That's the right response. It's shocking. (laughs) To give up your family, to give up your land, would have been a terrifying endeavor for anyone in Abram's position. And yet that is the entry point. That is the boldness that God enters into this picture with. That is the call that God offers. The question that people must ask, of course, is, well, who on earth would follow this type of call? Why would God make such a huge request? This seems so unlike him, and yet, of course, to readers of Scripture, we understand this actually isn't unlike God at all. There's a pattern that emerges in this text that will be repeated indefinitely throughout the rest of the history of God's people, isn't there? For this is far from the only time God makes a huge request of his people. Uh, This is by no means the only time which God calls his people to be known as sojourners, as basically immigrants. God routinely requires his people to sacrifice nation and family. God routinely calls his people to die to their own personal identities for the sake of being devoted entirely to him, Yahweh. That wasn't just an Old Testament teaching, was it? That same bold call is actually given to every single believer under the New Testament terms as well. For in case you have forgotten, Jesus Christ himself was no stranger to this severe call, to that boldness that is offered. You find that language oftentimes in the text of Jesus. In particular, you can hear it in passages like Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, we read, He, that is Jesus, was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Oftentimes, we forget the severity of the call of discipleship. And oftentimes, even us as believers are guilty of of watering down this language, aren't we? You hear believers use language like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Uh, And you you hear believers use this language that suggests that that Jesus is just inviting you into a better life. Jesus wants you to, to come just as you are, but that just basically means you don't have to give up anything, you don't have to change. Jesus just loves you the way you are. And while there's elements of truth in that, that is to say we don't have to clean ourselves up before coming to Christ, It ignores the severity of the call to discipleship. It ignores the fact that time and time again, God in the Old Testament, God the Son in the New Testament, call their their followers to die, to give up everything. And in so doing, he routinely speaks in that bold manner. This is the call of God, to give up nation, to give up self, to give up family. It always has been and it always will be. And left on its own, this call would seem entirely unreasonable, unbelievable. If not for the fact, of course, that as we already read earlier, and as we'll see, that Abraham actually agrees to this call. 
that Abram, who as far as we know has, has no belief in this God, has no devotion to this God, that all it takes is Abram to hear this one word, and Abram's on board. All Abram needed was to, to hear this God speak to him, and suddenly he was willing to do anything. As we understand that, take a step back, what I want us to see here, again, is not first and foremost the ability of Abram to believe or the faith of Abram, but what I want us to see is, is again, this is a picture of the power of God. This is, a, this is that which theologians call the effectual call. God is so beautiful, God is so majestic, God is so holy that he simply has to speak. And suddenly this individual that was once in darkness, involved in idolatry, involved in nothing different than the rest of the society, he is forever changed. It would be hard to believe if not for the fact that it has happened to every single one of us who has placed our faith in Christ. For every single Christian exists as someone who once lived in the darkness, who was once bound to hell and in a blink of an eye God speaks to you God changes your heart God changes everything you value God rescues you and he brings you into that domain of light he does so not with some watered down calling he does so with his own bold word of calling a calling that requires sacrifice a calling that requires the willingness to give up everything it's important to remember that for it's both a reminder of the power of the word of God as well as a reminder to our own calling. Again, oftentimes those of us who have been in Christ for, for years forget this. We forget that the calling of the faith is, is a calling for sacrifice. It's a calling that tells us to die to our nationality, die to placing our identity in our family name, and to be devoted entirely to Christ. That runs counter to, to everything our culture seems to stand for today. But that is to be the norm of every believer. We're defined not by where we live, not by which country we reside in, not by our last name. We are defined entirely by our God, by the one who called us. It's an incredible picture of devotion. More so, it's an incredible picture of the power of God's word. But if the calling were to just stop there, or people perhaps might be convinced that this is some sort of act of hypnotism. After all, there are numerous cults that exist, cults led by effective communicators that call people to give up a great deal and somehow convince others to do that. And some cynics perhaps might see this is all we have here in Genesis 12. God is simply hypnotizing Abram. But as we move forward, we see that his word is far more powerful than that. For by his word, not only is God is able to, to call Abram out of the darkness, but as we move forward, we see by his word, he also has the power to create. Is to create a new people. This is where we get into the details of the Abrahamic covenant, which is found in verses really 2 through 3. Again, we read those verses where God says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Having called Abram, and having promised him that, that someday he will bring him into a land he will show him, God now tells him specifically what he's going to do, what he is going to make, create, out of Abram. 
And as we look at just these few verses, we see numerous promises that God makes, all of which are awe-inspiring, all of which are well beyond anything that any human could ever possibly accomplish. Some of these promises are made specifically to Abraham, but as we'll see, other promises are actually open to the entire world. But we begin with the promises made specifically to Abram. Those promises are listed at the forefront, the front end of this covenant. Where again, God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Here we see three broad promises that God makes to Abram. Those promises are to make him into a great nation, to bless him, that is physical wealth, I believe, and ultimately to make his name great. Now, as I mentioned, all three of these promises are pretty incredible, but, but I think we can argue that that first promise is perhaps the most astonishing of them all. It is that promise in which God tells Abram, this individual, that he's going to take him out of his homeland, he's going to take him into a place that's controlled by other people groups, and he's going to make him into a great nation. A nation. Can you imagine someone telling you that you as an individual, you are going to be made into a nation? Even in our own context today, this seems unbelievable, for there's so much that would have to go into this, isn't there? And when you think of a nation, think, think of all the things that are essential to it. It requires, first of all, of course, land. God said he would take care of that, right? There's going to be land he's going to provide. But nations require more than that. You need a unified language. Something, as we already saw back in Babel, has been lost. You need that unity in language. You need finances. But more than anything else, what do you need for a nation? People. You need lots and lots and lots of people, don't you? And this is a huge deal, of course. Because while Abram could perhaps, by his own ingenuity, gather some of these other things, right? Abram could earn money. Right? He's a smart businessman, and we'll see that throughout the rest of Genesis, or you could see that, that Abram is intelligent. And so Abram, by his own ingenuity, could grow wealth. In the same way, if Abram was a really effective businessman, perhaps he could gain the trust of other people, and he could grow in these other areas. But if there's one thing that Abram can't do, it's have a lot of kids. Because when it comes to that department, well, he's out of luck, isn't he? For a variety of reasons, one being that he's 75, so a tad past childbearing age. And even if he was younger, who's he, who's he married to? Sarai. As we talked about last week, the author goes, goes out of his way to make sure we understand that Sarai is barren, meaning Sarai has no kids. She's not going to have any kids. And, and yet, to this person who has no children, who will never have ability to have children, God says, yeah, I'm going to use you. I'm going to make you into a nation. Again, to state this is to state something that would have been unbelievably bold. Perhaps impossible to, to fully comprehend, to believe at this time. And as we'll see, as the story of Abraham progresses, Abraham himself struggled to believe this. Sarai struggled to honestly believe this. Yet this is the promise that God comes back to over and over and over again. In fact, this is the promise that God leads with. And he leads with this promise for good reason, of course. 
for it would cause Abram and it causes any reader to understand that, that if God can do that, if God can reverse that fortune, well, certainly God can do everything. And certainly if God can do that, we can understand that these other promises could eventually be, come to fruition as well. For as we already mentioned, on top of making him to a great nation, well, God also promises to bless Abram, and that blessing, Old Testament-wise, speaks primarily not just to children, but to wealth. It, it speaks to success. You can read some of that success in the life of Abraham later on in his life. In passages like Genesis 26 and elsewhere, you see Abraham not just survive, but thrive oftentimes. In the midst of all this success, of course, ultimately, as God promises him there in verse 2, he will, as a result of all these things, make his name great. Cause his influence to be heard worldwide, internationally. Cause him to become a pretty big deal in the ancient world. And as God uses this type of language, as the author quotes God in this language, I think the obvious attention is back to what mankind had so unsuccessfully attempted to force themselves, isn't it? Particularly in this last promise, to make a great name of themselves. Where have we seen that language before? Well, it's Tower of Babel, isn't it? That was the driving motivation of those individuals at the Tower. For if you look back at Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, those masses gathered together, they settled and they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach the heaven and let us make a name for ourselves. This was the driving motivation of the people at Babel, and I would argue this was the driving motivation of every sinful human being before. We saw the same motivation with Lamech back earlier in Genesis, who, who speaks of the fact that his name will be renowned. People will know him to be a, a fearful individual, or someone to be feared, I should say. Time and time again, humanity strives to make a great name for themselves. And time and time again, they do it with the same strategy in mind, don't they? Like at the Tower of Babel, they settle. They build up their own city because they assume, well, that's going to bring security. And as they settle, they try to do that, oftentimes that which is violent, but that which is impressive in the, world, in the world's eyes. And they assume that by settling, by building a great civilization, that they can make a great name for themselves. Their venture, of course, fails every time. In direct contrast to that, what does God come in and do? What is God's strategy with Abraham? Is his strategy to settle? Is his strategy to, to impress everyone with your personal ingenuity, with your personal skills? No. The calling is leave, leave your land, avoid settling, go to a place you don't even know exists yet, and I will make your name great. Time and time again, it is that principal actor that we're supposed to look at. It's the fact that God and God alone can do this. It is the fact that if you have a kid, it is from the hand of God. If you do not have a kid, it is from the hand of God. If your name is great, it is from the hand of God. Every ounce of success from the hand of God. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he and he alone makes names great. He and he alone builds nations, and he and he alone crushes the nations when he's done with them. This was the power of God. And it is power that will ultimately be demonstrated in his own activity, but it is power that is immediately on display simply by speaking it. Simply by declaring it to be the truth, declaring it to be what he will accomplish. 
in this word, God isn't simply creating that which we've already seen in Genesis. He's forming a new substance. He's building up a new nation. That new nation, of course, ultimately being the nation of Israel. It's an incredible signal of God's power, an incredible display of what his word and his word alone can accomplish. It would have meant a great deal to the original audience, wouldn't it, those Hebrew people? For in these words we have the origin story of the nation of Israel. As those Hebrew people are looking into the promised land, they would hear these words and they could say, yes, this is why we can be confident. God said we would have a nation. God promised Abram, God worked through Abram, and now God's going to give us that land. What a blessed reminder that must have been to the Hebrew people, but also what a blessed reminder it is to us, for it's a reminder of, of that sovereign hand of God. It's a reminder of the need for us to, to be humbled. It's a reminder of the fact that regardless of our own dreams, regardless of our own desires, it all rests in that hand of God. And it drives us not to act more, not to do more, but to, but to pray more. To pray to God. Knowing, as Scripture says, unless the Lord builds, unless the, word, uh, the, the Lord acts, nothing can be accomplished. And so we're humbled by this. But while this is a beautiful passage for Hebrew people, and maybe we have some Hebrew people amongst us, the fact is, for the rest of us Gentiles, this word doesn't do a whole lot for us, does it? And you could argue, as great it is for the Hebrew people, this word doesn't even do a whole lot in terms of solving the worldwide problem that everyone faced. For if you recall, the, the book of Genesis and the curse, the fall of man, did not just affect the Hebrew people. No, the curse was worldwide. The land itself was cursed. People were dying because of the, the fall. People were separated from their creator. This was true for everyone, and it was seen especially true in the wake of Babel, for people seemed hopelessly divided. And the question that we've been asking them for the last number of weeks is, how on earth could God bring that back together? Not just how could God save the Hebrew people, but how could God bring redemption to this? How could he on earth reestablish the type of blessing, the type of paradise that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, the answer to that is found if we just continue on in the promises made to Abram. Because what we see as we continue in these promises is that God's end game was not simply to create a nation of Israel, but it was to create an entirely new people. It was to bring restoration to all the nations. We see that reality brought out at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3. Again, I'll read verse 2 and 3 so we see the overall context. God speaking to Abram says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's at the end of verse 2 that we see these promises of God take a shocking turn. For suddenly God reveals that his plan isn't just to bless Abram. It's not just to make Abram into a great nation. His plan was to use Abram as a vehicle to bless everyone else. And you see that come through in that language of you shall be a blessing. 
Some commentators read this and interpret the, the Hebrew there being as a command to Abram being a blessing. As in God is saying, and as you do this, make sure you bless others. And I can see where they're getting that, but I think it misses the point. It certainly misses the theme. For at no point in time in this covenant do we walk away with the belief that, well, Abraham's in charge of the success. No, never. It's always God. And so I think the right way of reading verse 2 is, you shall be a blessing. And verse 3 explains how Abraham's going to be such a blessing. That explanation is found in those final three points of the promise. For God says, I'll bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What God reveals there in verse 3 with that language of blessing and curse is that he's introducing this new shift into the story. He's introducing this new qualification of how someone can be blessed by God, how someone can be brought in a right relationship with God. In both cases, that qualification, that need, all hinges upon what? Hinges upon their relationship to Abram. Their standing before God is, God says, connected to Abram. And so if they bless you, if they treat you well, if they see you as the vehicle of blessing, they themselves are blessed. However, if they curse you, if they mock you, if they turn against you, well, that establishes that they're still amongst the cursed. This is huge in terms of a shift that is happening in the language of Genesis, isn't it? For before Genesis 12, what was the only hope of blessing? What was the connection to the blessing? The connection was always through that individual seed. Meaning, if you weren't in that line, if you didn't come from Seth, if you didn't come from Shem, well, you're out of luck. You're part of the wicked race. You're part of the cursed seed. But suddenly, suddenly we see that's not the ultimate plan of God. For suddenly these other people, people that come from unblessed, cursed lineages, they can still be blessed. They can still be brought in a right, right relationship with God, and it's all a matter of where they're connected to him, or a matter of how they're connected to Abram. And incredibly, we see that while it requires that connection to Abram, the invitation is not only to Hebrew people. The invitation is not just to those other lines that we've read already. But as he says in verse 3, in you all the families of the earth all the families of the earth will be blessed. Reading Genesis 1 through 11, all the families of earth, those who come from the lineage of Cain, can be a part of a blessing. Those who come from lineage of Ham can't enter into this blessing. Every nation of the earth can be brought into this blessing. We see this partial fulfillment already in the life of Abram. If you read through the rest of Genesis, you see how these other people are blessed by simply treating Abram well. You also see what comes to them if they treat him poorly. And throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament, you see God continuing to revisit this language, this promise. Turn with me, if you will, to, to a passage like Isaiah. Not a passage like Isaiah. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah. In Isaiah, we'll go 55. An important passage. Isaiah 55, you see one of the many examples of this type of prophecy. For in Isaiah 55, 
we read this. 3 through 5, Incline your ear to come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make you an everlasting covenant with you. According to the faithful mercy shown to David, behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know. A nation which knows you not will run you because the Holy Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. You see God's use of other nations, other passages like Isaiah chapter 11, 10 through 12 speaks of God's use and blessing ultimately of these other nations. Isaiah chapter 11, we read this language. In verse 10, in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples. His resting place will be glorious. It will happen on that day. The Lord will again recover the second time with his hand. The remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hemeth, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations. Assemble the banished ones of Israel. Gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. Those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. Judah will not harass Ephraim and so on and so forth. You see time and time again these other nations coming back to Jerusalem, these other individuals from the far corners of the world being saved. And you see this theme time and time and time again. And this theme, what are you seeing? You're seeing God use Abraham and the promises made to Abraham not just to bless the Hebrew people, but, but to bless the nations. It is something that is long foretold, prophesied throughout the Old Testament, but it is something that is not realized until you come to the New Testament. Indeed, as you come to the New Testament and you read the ministry of Christ, suddenly you see the concern of God was never just for the nation of Israel. The nation of God, or the, the, the passions of God, the desires of God, was for the nations as a whole. It's to bring people back together in one unified mass, unified around the same shared devotion to God, to Yahweh. But even in the midst of that reunification, the New Testament authors do not miss sight of the fact that it all still stems back to Abraham. That it all is found back in this covenant. You see this in a number of places, but in particular you see it in a passage like Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Where Paul, who has gone to great length to speak of the, the relationship between Jew and Gentile, says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, There is neither Jew nor Greek, Neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Yet again, this brings us back to not just Genesis 12, but Genesis 11, that genealogy that we spoke of last week. That genealogy that reminds us of the fact that that seed was continually passed down, not just to Abram, but ultimately, as we saw in passing last week, Ultimately, it's passed down until we come to Christ. And while Abram could not have understood this in, in Genesis 12, what we come to understand in the New Testament is that this ultimate promise of blessing all families comes to fruition not simply through Abram, but it comes to fruition through Jesus Christ, who's the Lord not just over Israel, but the Lord over all creation. Thus, as God speaks of this blessing, as God speaks of this end result, again, we're reminded of, of that glorious plan. That plan that was not just concerned of one small nation in the Middle East, but the plan 
to redeem humanity from the curse. A plan to bless them in the way he blessed them in Genesis 1 and 2. A plan to bring them back into that paradise, finally back in a right relationship with him. Through Abram, through this unlikely figure, we have then not just the reversal of Babel, but the reversal of the fall in Genesis 3. And as we see this, we again are reminded of how glorious and beautiful this plan of God is. We're reminded of how big of a plan every single one of us are a part of. We're reminded again of of why there's a need to die to nationality and die to these other minor identity markers. Because none of that matters compared to God. All that pales in comparison to this greater relationship, to this new kingdom, to this new priesthood as Peter speaks to. It's that nation that we now belong to. It is that identity that now marks us, that defines everything we are and everything we do. And as we come back to Genesis 12, we see that glorious identity, that glorious reality is brought into existence not by some grand act of man, but by the mere spoken word of God. For just as God can speak and create the heavens and the earth, God can speak and there's a nation. God can speak and there is redemption. God can speak, and those individuals that were once in darkness are now brought into light. That promise to Abram is magnificent. And that power of God's word to call him and to create this new people is significant, but still, still this leaves Abram in a difficult position. For as glorious and powerful as that word was to call him to change his life, where will this word be as Abram now begins his journey? We find the first answer to that in verses 4 through 9 where we see finally the word of God is not just powerful enough to call or create, but it also contains the power to sustain his people. Follow along with me once again as we read. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out in the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. We'll stop there for a moment. While Abram is not the focus of this text, his example of faith is important to take note of, isn't it? For as we already mentioned, Abram was not some devoted servant to Yahweh already. Abram knew what we can tell very little, if anything, of this Yahweh figure. Yet it's just the mere word that God gives him. At this ludicrous call that God gives him, what does Abram do? He follows. And the language, in fact, emphasizes that. For in verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. As the story picks up in verse 4, So Abram went forth as the Lord said to him. The Lord said to do something, so Abram did it. Not entirely different than the example of Noah that we discussed earlier in Genesis. Another story where God calls a servant to do something that is absurd in the eyes of the world. And yet after giving him all the details of what to do, what does then Noah do? Well, he does it. He does exactly what the Lord told him to do. He does that which servants of God do. He obeys. He may not fully understand, just as Abram did not fully understand, but he obeys. 
But in his obedience, there are, of course, some of those immediate problems that we have to acknowledge. And the author, again, needs us. He wants us to see the fact that these problems exist. For he reminds us that Abram's no spring chicken, is he? He's 75 years old, folks. Again, weird choice, God. 75, okay. Not only that, but he's joined with his wife, Sarai, that same Sarai who's barren. Reminds us of that fact. And to top it all off, when God finally brings him into a land, what do we read about that land? Remember, this is when the Canaanites still lived there. God doesn't bring him into some vacant property that no one's discovered yet. No, he brings him into a place that's brimming over with Canaanites. Really successful, really scary people. And as he does so then, he brings him into a position that again reminds the reader of a seemingly impossible set of obstacles. For how can Abram possibly find success in a land that he doesn't know the boundaries of, he doesn't know what families contain are containing this territory, he doesn't know their traditions, he doesn't know anything about this place. All he has is a bunch of stuff with him that just makes him a target to be robbed. And yet, yet, in the midst of that very real problem, what does God do? We read what God does in verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on his west and Ai in the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing towards the Negev. In the face of very real, very dangerous obstacles, obstacles that could threaten the very life of Abram and everyone he loves, what does God do? Does God drop a pile of cash on him? Does God put a magical fence around him so that no one can touch him? No. God appears to Abram, and God just speaks to Abram. As God appears, he, he does that which is oftentimes defined or described as, as a theophany. We see these appearances of God in the Old Testament, particularly with these great patriarchs of the faith, where God shows up on the scene to basically remind these patriarchs, like Abram, like Isaac, like others, and tells them, hey, I, I'm going to live up to my end of the bargain. I'm going to do this. And it's amazing to see how simple the message of God is to Abram. For what does he say? He, he simply gives him this one very brief message. To your descendants, I will give this land. What is God telling him? Well, in essence, he, he's just repeating what he already told him, isn't he? He's reminding him of the promise of land and, promising, and reminding him of the promise of, of descendants, of kids. He's telling Abram, you see this place where you are now? Someday this is going to belong to your kids. And there's so much in that statement that we could camp out on for hours. We won't. Don't worry. But there's so much wealth here. There's, there's so much beauty in this text. For in just these few simple words, you can only imagine how sweet it must have been to the ears of Abram. For it's a reminder that he didn't make a mistake. It's a reminder that God had, in fact, brought him to the land. And it's a reminder that someday that land's going to belong not to Abram, but to his kids and their kids and their kids' kids after him. It is a reminder 
the simplicity but reliable faithfulness of God. And it is so incredible, both for what it says as well as what it does not say, for again, God does not offer him immediate comfort. Nor does he offer him immediate success. In fact, if you continue to read on with Abram, you find that this is a hundred-year journey he goes on, at the end of which he owns nothing but a burial plot for his wife. God never tells Abram, go to this place and it's going to be awesome for you. You're going to love it. What God does tell him is this land will eventually belong to your descendants. And as short and sweet as that statement is, it's enough to sustain Abram. For with that one simple statement, what does Abram do? He builds an altar. Builds an altar to remind himself of the faithfulness of God, perhaps to remind others. It's a practice we see throughout the Old Testament. And he continues on in his journey. And the journey is one that is moving him southward, eventually towards Jerusalem. We know from the story it eventually is leading him to the place where he will be called to sacrifice his own child in another famous account in Genesis. We find here then is this word of God was not simply powerful enough to call Abram out of the darkness. It was powerful enough to keep him going into the light. Even when things looked dreary, even when things looked hopeless. It sustained him. It was enough. And in that sufficiency, Abram was no doubt being shown a great truth regarding God, but so were the people who would have received this message, those Hebrew people. For it was a reminder to them that while God does not promise immediate comfort or success, God's word is enough for them. And since God had promised the Hebrew people they would have the promised land, they could faithfully move into the promised land with full confidence that it would belong to them. The word of God was to sustain them. It was to keep them going. It was only when they turned away from that word, away from that law, that they would then venture back into darkness. The same message must be heard by us today for we still live in a world in which things look confusing and dreary at times but we must remember the word of God is still enough. First and foremost, it is enough in the incarnate word of God who has come to us, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who promised us that those who thirst will never thirst again, those who hunger will never hunger again if we simply come to him, the incarnate word who gives eternal life. But even on top of that, God gives, him, gives us his sufficient written word. And we as believers are reminded of the words of people like Paul in 2 Timothy who tells us that the word is sufficient for our daily calling. And so again, while we might be confused at times as to what God wants us to do, while we might argue about the specific will of God in various decisions, we can know that this word is sufficient to guide us. The word is sufficient to give us hope. The word is sufficient to point us back to the glorious faithfulness of God. And so even if we cannot predict what the next thing will be around the corner, we can know that that next thing around the corner will still be in the sovereign hand of God. And we can know that God will sustain us, that God will keep us safe in his heavenly hands. And so like Abram, we remind ourselves of that fact. We build an altar, we make a note of it, we tell others about it, and we continue to move forward in slow but consistent obedience. And we do so again, not because of some grand act of humanity, not because of some beautiful strategy that is always obvious to us. We do so because the word of God tells us to do so. And if the Bible tells us to do something, if the Bible has revealed something to us, it is true now and forevermore, regardless of what the world might say. And so as we consider this example of Abram, 
And as we close today and have an opportunity to remember that incarnate word and what it means to us, we are reminded of indeed the infinite power of the word of God. And if you're here today and have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you see the power of God's word all around us. I pray that you see the evidence of this power in the history that unfolds from Genesis, the history of Israel, the history of Abraham. God was faithful to do that which no one could have predicted in Genesis 12. God did it exactly as he said he would. Even more significantly, God was faithful to bring the incarnate word Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the price of our sins. And dear unbeliever, all you must do is accept that word. Believe that word. Die to yourself. And in dying to yourself, find life in Jesus Christ. I pray that you think of that. That you consider that decision day. And as the rest of us take part in communion, please in your seat, pray to God for forgiveness. Place your faith in his son. As always, if you have any questions about that, please talk to us afterwards in the lobby. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let this morning be a reminder of that unbelievable power of God's word. Let us rejoice in our own calling. For we too once resided in darkness. We too were once nothing but idolaters destined for hell. But with a spoken word, God opened your eyes. God opened your ears. God caused you to see for the first time the beauty of Christ. Rejoice in that fact. As we rejoice in that fact, let us return to our proper devotion in Christ. Let us daily die to ourselves. Die to our obsession with anything else that comes before him. Die to nation. Die to family. Live purely for Christ. And as we do so, let us be renewed daily. Knowing that the end result is not hopeless. It is not dark. It is not cloudy but it is the revealed glory of God and his eternal life with him, not in some measly earthly kingdom, but in his heavenly kingdom, which will never fade. As the band comes up and plays here in a moment, those of us who place our faith in Christ are given the opportunity to be reminded of that. And so as they play, brothers and sisters in Christ, you're invited to come, take this juice, take the cracker as a physical reminder of that incarnate word, as a reminder of that promise of Christ. And as we do so, let us be reminded of the fact that this and this alone is what defines us. This and this alone is what unifies us. This and this alone is our guarantee for that future salvation. Let's prepare our hearts as we partake. Father in heaven, God, we love you. We praise you for we know we are nothing without you. We praise you for the fact that in your infinite wisdom, you did not simply create the world, you do not simply create beautiful landscapes, God, but you have created a people set apart for you. A people who transcend all ethnic boundaries, all nationalities, God. And we thank you for that because apart from that, we would all be doomed to hell. And so, God, might we be quick to rejoice in that today, God, as we partake in communion, might we be reminded of that incarnate word, Jesus Christ, And might we be reminded of that daily call to die to self and live only for you. We love you, God. We praise you. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.